if you would like to, you don't have to. It's not going to be much of a party if Papa D's up here by himself, you know. Thank you, Jason. They're still coming. Hey, so we've been talking about the Ten Commandments. So show me your ten fingers, okay? We've got ten commandments. And God gave Moses ten commandments. And he said, this uh, summarized how we are to live. And I don't know if y'all remember these, but we're up to number six. But number one is... You shall only worship the one true God. It's like this. Put your one finger up like this, okay? Only one true God. Number two is like this. You shall not bow down to any idols. Isn't that cute? Like, yeah. Like that, okay? Can y'all do that? Some of y'all, thank you, Jeremy. That's good. Julie, that's good. Y'all are doing good. Number three, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Okay? Number four is like this. You put it on your head like you're sleeping on a pillow. And you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Hmm. Number five is like this. Clayton, won't you stand up? Clayton, stand up. I'm going to demonstrate this. This is five. Boom, boom. Okay. Honor your... That didn't hurt. Don't act like that. Come on, man. It may have hurt your feelings. Number five, we remember that from... Uh, Spankings. <clears throat> Honor your father and your mother. It comes with the promise that your days may be long. It implies if you do not honor your father and your mother, your days may be short. Take that into consideration. Number six is this one. Now, y'all got the first five? Okay. Number six is this. We're going to hold up five fingers like this on one hand. And then we're going to put our thumb up on this hand, like this. So that's six. See, five fingers, six. Number six is, you shall not murder. And what we do, we do a little thing like this. We go, ah. This is, it's a memorization tool. Okay? Five fingers up, like you were stabbing somebody. Ah. Okay? Um, You shall not murder is number six. So the Sixth Commandment teaches us that we are never to take the life of another human being. We're never to kill anyone. The reason we're not to kill anyone is because every person is made in the image of God and is holy and sacred before God. And we are to respect all other human beings and we are never to take another human being's life. That's number six. You shall not murder. Okay? All right. I'll be back next week. Okay? Y'all can go sit with your parents. Respect them this morning that your days may be long. In Isaiah chapter 6, The prophet Isaiah is a young man, probably in his early 20s, had an encounter with God. At that end of the encounter, he hears the voice of God, and the voice of God says, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? Isaiah says, Here am I. 
send me. And basically God commissions Jeremiah to go out and proclaim his word, which Jeremiah does. I'm sorry, Isaiah. How many times have I said Jeremiah? Twice, I'm sorry, Isaiah. Just checking to make sure you all paying attention. For 50 years, Isaiah is the spokesman of God. Um, That encounter in Isaiah 6 led Isaiah to the place of what I have called consecration to God. His life was at the place where he said, God, because you are God, whatever it is that you want to do in my life and through my life, God, I have surrendered my, my, my life and everything I am to you. You use me any way you choose. That is a, the very essence of what we talk about this month when we talk about a servant's heart. So Isaiah has an encounter with God that brings him to the point of consecration or the word that we have used or using this summer, holy. To be set apart for God's purposes. And God uses that encounter in Isaiah 6 as a framework for the rest of Isaiah's ministry and his message And the experience and the encounter that Isaiah had with God in those verses that we've looked at in Isaiah 6 is the same encounter process that God wants to bring us through. In fact, when you, as I've said in the previous weeks, as you read through the book of Isaiah, the 66 chapters, you see all of these components uh, woven through his message and his life. You see... What God wanted to do through Isaiah was to bring God's people to the place of consecration or holiness. And that's what God wants to do in our lives today. That's the reason it's recorded in the book. Is that we might glean from that. And God might do in our lives a work of consecration or holiness or as we describe the process as the road to holiness. In those first verses uh, of Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision of holy God, and that is the starting point of the road to holiness. In response to his vision of holy God, Isaiah confesses his sin. He comes to the place of agreeing with God holy God about the condition of his life and more importantly his heart that's in verse 5 and he says woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts I don't know there's a little bit of a pause there for me at least the way I see it There's no sense that Isaiah was expecting God to show up that day in the temple. But God shows up and he sees this vision of holy God and his glory filling the temple. And the walls shaking and the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. And in response to that, Isaiah says, I messed up. I'm unclean. 
I've seen the king. And I think as you're, as, as you're just telling us a story, there's this dramatic pause at this point. What's going to happen? What's going to happen at that point? Does, is Isaiah going to do something? Is God going to do something? And I think what happens next is hugely significant for our lives today. It says in verse 6 and also in verse 7, this is going to be our focal point today. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. In the midst of the dramatic pause, it was God who acted. And in his act, in verses 6 and 7, recorded in verses 6 and 7, God takes away Isaiah's sin if we kind of look at this in reverse at the end of verse 7 the seraphim says to Isaiah your iniquity is taken away your sin is purged this fire has burned away your sin Uh, the sin that you acknowledged has been taken away from you uh It was the sin that separated Isaiah and God and it messed up their relationship and now the declaration is that sin that has separated you from God has been taken away. It has been forgiven. It's been purged. It's been cleansed. However you want to say it. In fact, if you look at the the phrase right before that, the seraphim says, Behold, this has touched your lips. And at the start of verse 7, he says, Isaiah says, and he touched my mouth. He touched my mouth, and the seraphim says, this has touched your lips. This is the very point that Isaiah had confessed to God of his unholiness. When Isaiah is in the presence of God, the one thing that he acknowledges and confesses before God, specific sin, is I am a man of unclean lips. That was his confession of sin. Was there other sin in his life? Oh, certainly. But the thing that he was convicted of and he confessed to God was his, his, his mouth, his lips. And so when the seraphim comes, the seraphim applies the coal to that very spot or point in his life. It says in verse 6 that that coal that was placed on his lips was a live coal, which means it was burning. And that the seraphim, the seraph, had taken it from the altar. So remember that when Isaiah sees the Lord, he's in the temple. And the walls of the temple shake. 
He's in an earthly setting. This is not a vision of God in heaven, in His temple. This is the earthly temple. And God shows up there. And in that temple is the place of sacrifice, the altar, where not only the animals were slain, but then their their flesh was burned on the altar. The altar is the place where atonement is made. And so the seraph takes the coal from the altar and burns the lips of Isaiah. And the declaration is made that your sin has been taken away. The seraph becomes an intermediary between God and Isaiah. So Isaiah sees God high and lifted up and he sees the seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy. He acknowledges his sin and in that dramatic pause, what happens next is the seraph comes, takes a coal off the altar, applies it, and he speaks. I guess my question is, I just look at that scripture, is why did the seraph do that? Why did the seraph in that dramatic pause leave his place of praise of God and come and take a coal off the altar and apply it to Isaiah's lips? Why? The simple answer from Hebrew is, duh. That was a joke. Because God must have told him to. The angelic beings only live out of obedience to God. And it's not recorded in the scripture, but in that dramatic pause, God said, I'm going to forgive your sin. I'm going to take care of it. The seraph is dispatched. Takes the coal. Why did he take a coal? Once again, duh. (laughs) Because that's what God told him to do. Why did he apply it to to his lips? Because that's what God told him to do. The angelic being only does the beckoning of God. Whatever God asks him to do. What strikes me in the story is that Isaiah did nothing. Accept, acknowledge, or confess his sin before holy God. As he encountered holy God, all Isaiah said was, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, my eyes have seen the King of hosts. He didn't ask God to forgive him of his sin. He didn't ask the seraph to come and to take a coal and to burn away the sin from his lips. Isaiah did nothing. God was the one who took the initiative and sent the intermediary to come and to take away his sin. And it's that one truth that we just got to pitch a tent on today and understand this. Now there's going to be some more truths. There are going to be a couple more sermons from these verses, I'm just telling you. But this morning... We need to understand in the third step in the road to holiness, which is purification from sin, 
that purification from sin is God's work. Purification from sin is God's work. God does it, not me. That is a huge statement that has very significant implications for us. It is God who does it. He is the one who bridges the gap when sin has separated us from Him. He is the one who has the answer. He is the one who has the solution. When our sin separated us from God, it was God who separated our sin from us. He was the one who took it away. It is interesting that Isaiah's very name communicates this message. Isaiah's name in the Hebrew simply means salvation is of the Lord. Isaiah, salvation is of the Lord. It is God who saves. It is God who forgives. It is God who takes away our sin. It is not me. In fact, the message throughout the book of Isaiah is God is the one who saves. He is our Redeemer. And you know what, you know what the, the admonition, what is it we do in response to that? Look to Him. Look to Him. Acknowledge your sin. He will take away your sin. We're going to get to some implications of that in just a moment. You can either write these down or you can listen to them closely this morning. But all throughout the book of Isaiah, God was communicating to the people that He is the one who saves. He is Redeemer. These aren't going to be on the screen. You can write them down. You can listen to me. You can look them up in your Bible. They'll be in, in order. Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12, 1 and 2. It says, and, and in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, or a shortened form of Yahweh, the Lord is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. He is the one who saves. Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, verse 9. Isaiah 25, 9. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. He is the one who saves. He is Redeemer. Chapter 30, verse 15. 30, 15. Isaiah 30, 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. Chapter 45, verse 17. 45, 17. 
45, 17, but Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. God will save and God will save forever. 49, 26. Chapter 49, verse 26. Actually, I want to read the second half of that. 49:26 All flesh shall know that I the Lord am your savior and your redeemer the mighty one of Jacob When God saves everyone will know that it was him and then finally chapter 63 verse 5 63.5 I looked but there was no one to help and I wondered that there was no one to uphold and then God says this therefore therefore my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury it sustained me it's that phrase I underlined it in my Bible it jumped out of me I God says, therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. God said, I will do it. Purification from sin, salvation, holiness is not our work. It is God's work in us. And when we begin to read those verses, we, we realize how much that sounds like the New Testament. And I've said to you this before that Isaiah is the most New Testament of the Old Testament books and we're going to get deeper into that in the next two weeks. Because it sounds, what, what Paul teaches in the New Testament, that salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. And all we have to do is believe. We have to look to Him. We have to acknowledge our sin. He will do the work. He will take away our sin. It is not my works, but it is His work, which we will talk about in the next two weeks. But when you read the Old Testament, that's not the answer you expect. We read the Old Testament and, you know, I'm even teaching the kids, you know, the Ten Commandments. And here's the top ten rules. And we get this impression of the Old Testament that it's about legalism and it's about obeying the law and, and, and it's our works and we have to do this sacrifice and we have to do this. It's all about what I do in my performance so that I can be right with God. And then all of a sudden, in the book of Isaiah, his very name that salvation is of the Lord. That it's not you. It's him who's going to save. He's going to be the one who takes away your sins. You're not going to take away your sins. You're not going to measure up. And all through the book of Isaiah, the prophet is saying, just return to God and look to Him. He will save if you will just acknowledge your sin and look to Him. He will do it. And I'm telling you today, the implications of that are huge. As we walk down the road to holiness, a vision of holy God, confession of our sin, but that third step is purification from sin and I'm telling you that the purification from sin is God's work not mine
It's the gospel that we see in the New Testament that is recorded all throughout the book of Isaiah. The implications for us are hugely significant today. I want you to understand that the confession of sin is what triggers the purification from sin. Vision of a holy God. Isaiah confesses or acknowledges his sin before God and his confession triggers God's purification from sin. And so in Isaiah 6, without Isaiah even asking, God dispatches the seraph to come and take away his sin. Why? Because he acknowledged it. Purification from sin is God's work. In that dramatic pause between verses 5 and 6, it was not that Isaiah in his mind said, well, you know, I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to clean up my life. That could have been another approach. Isaiah could have acknowledged his sin before God and said, God, I want to, I want to promise you today that I'm going to do better. I know I've been messing up, but I'm going to do better, God. I'm going to clean up my life. And then, God, maybe I'll be right with you. I want you to understand that's not the right approach to God. And the reason it will never work is because God's standards, His ways are not our ways, His thoughts are not our thoughts, He says later in Isaiah. No, you're dealing with a holy God. You're never going to clean up your life and get to God. You're just not going to do it. And many people through the years, and I'm almost 30 years in. It's a little unbelievable. I'm about to be married 33 years. The third of a century. This November, I'll be a pastor for 30 years. And many times, whether people have expressed it or not, they will not come and get right with God. Because they say, you know what, I need, to get, I need to get some things cleared up and cleaned up. And I need, to, I need to get my life in order. And then I'll come to God, preacher. And I'm telling you, today it doesn't work like that. Because if you think you're going to clean up your life and you're going to be okay with God, you do not understand the standards and the holiness of God. When Isaiah saw God, he knew he was undone. He knew he was messed up. He knew he couldn't clean up his life. He knew he wasn't going to get back with God by by doing some good things. No, his sin was against God and God alone, and it was only God who could fix the problem. And I'm telling you today, Satan may say to you today, When God convicts you of your sin, it's like, well, hey, all right, take this as an opportunity to do better and get your act together, and then maybe you can come to church and do the things. But, you know, you you got to get some things settled. I'm just telling you, it doesn't work like that. Our responsibility is, is, is to acknowledge our sin before holy God, honestly. And transparently and say, God, I agree with you. 
about the sin in my life. And I'm telling you today, it is the responsibility of holy God then to bridge that gap. It is his work. And I think Satan lies to people sometimes and said, well, see, you can't come to God because you don't have your stuff together. But see, what we've done is we've made our standard other people. And we've judged our lives on other people. And so people say, well, if I can be kind of maybe up there with the churchy people, you know, I'll be all right and I can get all right with God. Well, that news, the churchy people are sinners too. And they don't measure up to the standards of holy God. If you're trying to live as good as the preacher lives, you're in trouble. Not because you can't reach that standard. It's because it's not going to be enough before holy God. You see, I think Satan lies to us and he tells us, well, look around and decide what the standard is out there and try to get up to that and just try to do better. The problem is when the standard is God's, we'll never measure up. But the gospel is, he says, I will take care of it. I will bridge the gap. I don't clean up my life on my own. The truth of the gospel is God has to clean up my life. My works, my following of the rules will not be enough before holy God. When we make other people our standards, the problem is, here it is. When we fail to live up to those standards, then the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, comes and says, See, you don't measure up. He just takes us down. The accuser of the brethren says, See, you don't measure up. But you see, when God is the one who takes away our sins, when the accuser of the brethren says... You don't measure up. We say, it's not my responsibility. It's God's responsibility to take care of my sin, not me. That's why in the book of Revelation, they overcame him by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb, which we're getting to, but not this Sunday. No, there is a way that God, even in Isaiah, that God says, I'm going to take away your sin but all I want, I want us just to settle today on the one truth that purification from sin is God's work. He will do it so that when the enemy comes and says you don't measure up, our answer says you'll have to take that up with God because he's the one who's bridging the gap. I know I don't measure up. But when we make others our standards and somehow we, we set ourselves up for that of whether uh, you know we've got it together or we don't have it together when that cannot be the basis of our relationship with God, all Isaiah did was say, Woe is me. I'm stuck. I'm messed up. And when he acknowledged his sin, God sends the seraph to take the coal and apply it to the very point of his life that he has confessed with his, his mouth, his lips. And the seraph declares, why does the seraph declare this? Because God told him to. 
your sin is taken away. Our sin is against God. And God declares, I've taken it away. And all through the book of Isaiah, it says our only response, the only thing we must do to trigger the purification from sin, which is God's work, is that we must turn to and trust in holy God to do that work and not ourselves. I want you to know this morning that the road to holiness, if you take anything from this, you better understand, if, if the road to holiness to you is deciding what your rules and your standards are and trying to live up to that and, and to make your way, hmm, it's not the road to holiness that's taught in the Bible. Because not only is salvation God's work, get this Christians, because here's the thing. Some people say, oh yeah, I understand that, that we're saved by grace through faith. But once we get saved and Jesus washes away our sin, then we got, we got to live like this or we're not going to be progressing down the road. If I can just put it in, in churchy terms, justification, being made right with God, is only God's work. And sanctification is also only God's work. And once we make it my responsibility and me living according to the rules and regulations or what my standards are, we've, we've, we've detoured off the road. It's not the road to holiness. Because if I can do that, how foolish I would be to think that somehow I would end up at holy God. Because holy God is high and lifted up. The only way we can bridge that gap is if he does it and not me. Our only response is to turn to him and trust in him. Salvation is his work, but holiness is also only his work. I don't know, maybe that didn't even register with you. I don't make it up, I just preach what's in the book that's what he told me to do 30 years ago that's what he says and it brings glory and honor to him I'm going to ask you to stand this morning as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed some of you in this room may be to the point to say I need to get some things right with God and I want you to know that this time, this moment is yours. And I want you to make it, I want to make it very clear to you that it's not about you cleaning up your life and then presenting it before God. It's simply about you acknowledging your sin before holy God. And then letting Him do the work that only He can do. And so, Father, we commit this time to you. We pray that you would use it for your glory. Father, we would know your grace and your mercy, your forgiveness, your love, your salvation in this place today. We pray it in Jesus' name. The altar is open this morning as we sing.